podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to Nesson Dorma. This is your chat about 80s and 90s football. I am Lee Calvert. I'll be hosting this little gallop and chat through some more 80s and 90s football today. Joining me, as per usual, or mostly usual, is Mr. Rob Smythe. Hello, Rob. Hello. And given the subject of this week is Euro 96, we thought it's best to bring along the man who has literally written the book on it, which is uh, When Football Came Home, which is Mr. Mike Gibbons. Hello, Mike. Hi, Lee. How you doing? That was the right title for the book, wasn't it? Sorry, I just realised I got, I, got, I got a bit panicky there. It was, yeah. yeah. When football came home, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Welcome to everybody who is a new listener after our very uh, our appearance on Guardian Sport last week, because I know there are quite a few new listeners that have come off the back of that. Thanks, all of you, for giving up what is some of your precious time to spend it with us. We do appreciate it, and hopefully it'll be, it'll be worth your time. If you want to get in touch with the podcast, there's a website, nessundormapod.com, where there's a mailing list. There's also a Twitter account, at nessundormapod. And you can also get in touch on the email, which is contact at nessundormapod.com. We're available on Acast, we're available on Apple Podcasts, where you can leave a review if you like what you hear. And also, you, wherever podcasts are sold, you can find us. So thanks very much. Coming up this week, well, we've already mentioned that the big chat will be about Euro 96. Every week, we do have a, a major conversation topic that we like to base it around. We're also going to sprinkle in a selection of our favourite managerial outbursts is the best way to call it. Some of them are meltdowns, some of them not quite so much. But first of all, we'd just like to pause for a minute, actually, and remember uh, Jimmy Armfield, who has died this week at the age of 82. Um, I suppose my first thoughts on it is it's hard to think of a more complete football man. I was going to say that. I don't actually know what the phrase football man means, but I do know Indeed, that Jimmy yeah. Armfield was the embodiment of it. Yeah, well, yeah. completely. The ep- that epithet is often applied to people who actually can be a bit unpleasant, you know, when somebody's done something horrible, they go, yeah, but he's a proper football man. <laughs> yeah. Don't they? Yeah, they yeah, kind of apply yeah. it to awful people or awful be, actions. But actually, he might, be a, he might be a racist, sexist scumbag, but he's, but a, he's, a, he's a proper <laughs> football man, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I think exactly. there's something about but no, that. No, that certainly wasn't. Yeah. I was going to say, we're not suggesting it anyway. No, good, no, honest. good God, no. But yeah, that's what I mean. I think it's really good that actually people are using the name in association with something far more pleasant. One club man with Blackpool, of course. Captain England, uh, he was a manager. I'd forgotten, actually, he was the manager at Leeds and picked up all yeah. the pieces in 1974 they, after the Clough nightmare, when, wasn't he? When they got to the final, yeah, the European Cup and lost to Bayern. Um, he was, yeah, apparently did a really good job. I mean, I think most people of our age will associate him with Five Live or Radio 2, as it was, uh, and his co-commentary. Yeah, and it just, oh, it's quite sad, as it? it feels like every week now you would yeah. start a podcast. I mean, someone died, but but he's, you associate so much with your childhood, just such a kind of gentle. There's a lovely bit in um, Daniel Gray did a really good book about the kind of pleasures of um, old football. I think it's called Saturday 3 p.m. I think, and one of them is Jimmy Armfield's voice. Really nice little essay on that. Um, he just seemed like he wore his knowledge really lightly and his expertise, but also he just seemed like an incredibly decent man as well. Absolutely, and of course, from my point of view, he gets at least a thousand extra points for being from Lancashire. So. <laughs> But no, uh, a great man. I think... Uh, Go on, Mike, yeah. Sorry, I was going to say, I think one of the things that highlights what a nice fella he was is, you know, when, when someone does pass away these days, you normally get someone, you know, with your whole outpouring of affection, you get a few people that go the other way with it and say, oh, well, actually, 
you know, he wasn't such a nice guy or whatever, but there's been none of that with Jimmy Armfield at all. I've not seen, you know, one kind of derogatory or negative thing about him. And actually, the same with Cyril Regis last week. It was like, lost two really, really exceptional human beings. There was a nice story I saw on Twitter uh, from, I forget who it was anyway, sorry, whoever it was. But when Howard Wilkinson was caretaker manager of England, he was at a press conference and they were criticising him or whatever. And he said, basically, how many caps have you lot got? And a voice just piped up from the back, 43, and it was Armfield. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, the, the, nice. the, one of the, I don't know how true this is, but there is the theory, isn't it, that if he hadn't injured himself in 64, 65, and allowed effectively George Cohen to take his position, he could have ended up playing in the 66 World Cup, and who knows, but might be a bit mm. of a reach, that one. But he was captain so he was of England, a, of course. And he actually had something to do with the United Six, didn't he, as, as Mike would tell us, when Graham Taylor was sacked or quit, he, the FA hired Armfield to kind of scout a new manager or um, certainly be like an advisor. And he, I think he wanted Keegan, didn't he, Mike? Yeah, Keegan was his preferred choice, but um, the FA, they sent Armfield around the country to kind of canvas opinion from uh, managers, players, fans, and the, the overwhelming kind of choice came back Venables. So that that's who he, in the end, recommended. But oh, yeah, for, for, yeah, first of all, he wanted, that was when Keegan was like the the rising star of club management. Mm. Yeah, so rest in peace, Jimmy. Uh, we've all been greater for having you in the game, I think. And it's true, it's, it's like you say, he's one of the few uh, pundits that people don't get pissed off with. Yeah. Everybody like, gets he... naffed off at some point. But actually, like you said, he was just this kind of knowledgeable, not controversial. And I mean that in a good way. I don't mean he was like, mm. you know, wouldn't say what was going wrong. He just didn't seem to piss people off like everybody else he was. He was Twitter proof. He was <laughs> a very, very, oh, very. That is a man. that is a select band of people, isn't it? Uh, right then. So that was Jimmy Armfield. I say, rest in peace, Jimmy. Um, we're going to just talk about some managerial outbursts, and we've got some clips of a few. Uh, a few people have nominated some stuff on Twitter. Thanks very much for that. And that was at Nessandorba Pod. Matthew Christ got in touch on Twitter, and he suggested Sir Alex Ferguson's view of his own team when winning the, the Scottish Cup. So let's have a listen. To that, this is when he was Aberdeen manager. Were you surprised by the way that Rangers Norman McLeish won a cup for Aberdeen. Norman McLeish played Rangers themselves. A disgrace of performance. And I'm okay in winning cups, doesn't matter. Their standards have been set long ago, and they're not going to accept that from any Aberdeen team. And no way can we take any glory. I mean, does it say something about him from early doors that he reacted like that to winning? Let's just stress this: winning a trophy. Well, I don't. It wasn't just winning a trophy either. I mean, I think that was Aberdeen's. It's something like their sixty-fifth game of that season. <laughs> a week earlier, they'd beaten Real Madrid after extra time in the Cup Winners' Cup. That Scottish Cup final went to extra time, and they won it. And it was the last game of what must have been a knackering season because they they battered that out with about sixteen players. And it's yeah, it probably tells you everything about his perfectionism that he w- he wouldn't just let them have that. <laughs> he didn't, no, he kind of laid into yeah. them before. It also before really, they went on this summer holidays. I think he did really regret it, didn't he? Didn't yeah, I think yeah, he later said yeah. But it, it yeah. also makes me remember as well. You forget how much he's even though he still had one. His Scottish accent did mellow from all that time in the north of England because he's still <laughs> he's more Glaswegian there, isn't he, than he was twenty five years later. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, DRN17 got in touch on Twitter as well and he suggested Big Ron losing it with Sky so let's have a listen to that one 
John, the bottom line is you've lost. You're running out of time. You're below the drop line. Where next for Coventry City? How Tot can you get out of it? Tottenham on Sunday, Saturday. That's that's next. That's next. But you have to show, surely, don't you, a little bit more than there was evident tonight? You may say that. We don't think so, you know, Richard. I'm sorry. You can sit there and look and play with all your silly machines as much as you like. I'm manager of a football team. I'm an experienced manager. Yeah, if the boys hadn't done enough, I'll whip them. I ain't whipping them for that tonight. Who won the Man of the Match award? Dave Besant won the oh, Man sorry, of the Match Oh, sorry, so he must have played not bad then. Thank you very much, lads. See you later. OK, Ron. Well, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. <laughs> That's brilliant. I love that one. It's slightly overshadowed, isn't it? Because two months later, Keegan um, did his famous uh, outburst against Fergie. So he kind of lost in that. But... Um, yeah, because yeah, it, it, was, it was the way they did it. That it was Keys and Gray in the studio, and it was always a manager with headphones yeah, on, wasn't it? Yeah, Keys just jabbing. Keys just jabbing them. But yeah, but the other thing it doesn't show is that Atkinson took his headphones off and pretty much threw them at the producer. I think with Jeff Shreves actually. Um, and then, like, I think they smacked him in the face or something. Yeah. Yeah, and he can't. But, the thing is, he flung him in, in a temper. He, he lunges towards him, which is actually to apologise. It is. It's all shit. The, Sorry, mate. At yeah. first on the camera, it looks like he's lunging towards him to finish him off. <laughs> yeah. I quite like also what, where next for commentary? Tottenham on Saturday, mate. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Given so. uh, what we all know about them now, I mean, it's difficult to know who to side with in that <laughs> that argument between yeah. Keys Gray and um, and Atkinson. But the way the way Atkinson. Just takes the wind out of keys at the end of the uh, yeah the best the man of the match <laughs> thing. <laughs> yeah, it's just brilliant. Yeah. So anyway, while we're on, shall we do? Shall we do the Keegan one? while you've mentioned it? Oh man. What's interesting yeah. about the Keegan one is because people only ever know now. You only ever get the clip of him at the end. Yeah. And what's interesting if you listen to it now, you get the full monologue that he does, and he, he he's obviously the on the verge of tears at yeah. one point. He's losing it so badly. Listen to this. I think things have been said about. I think you've got to send Alex Ferguson a tape of this game, haven't you? <laughs> Isn't that what he asked for? Well, I'm sure if he was watching it tonight, he could, tonight Kevin, he could have no arguments about the way Leeds went about their job and really, really and, tested and, your team. And we're, we're playing Notts Forest on Thursday, and he objected to that. Now, that was fixed up four months ago. We were supposed to play Notts Forest. I mean, that sort of stuff, we're, it, it's been, we're, be, we're bigger than that. But well, that's you part know. and parcel of the psychological battle, Kevin. No, it? that's no, when you do that with footballers, <laughs> like he said about Leeds, and when you do things like that about a man like Stuart Pearce, I'm, I've kept really quiet, but I'll tell you something. He went down in my estimation when he said that. We have not resorted to that, but I'll tell you, you can tell him now, be watching it. We're still fighting for this title, and he's got to go to Middlesbrough and get something. And, and I'll tell you, honestly, I will love it if we beat them. Love it. Do you know what? Uh, everyone talks about Ferguson's victory, obviously, but if he gets the goal, you've got to give Keyes an assist, really, because Keegan's quite calm. You're right, he's like he's unsettled, but he's quite calm. And it's only when Keyes says, that's part and parcel, isn't it? And that just tips him completely over the edge. He's a truly lovely bloke, Kevin Keegan. He is, he and really is. And when he loses it, you realise the difference between him and somebody like Ferguson or somebody like Clough. One he's not articulate enough to lose it properly. He doesn't know what to say. He can't find the words. He's so worked up, isn't he? But also, yeah. he can also just lose it and scream like Ferguson would do mm. or just get abusive. Do you know what I mean? That's, yeah. It says a lot about him. He's not the most articulate guy in the world. He's a lovely guy, but he's losing it, but doesn't probably doesn't really want to lose it. And it's there's something about it that kind of paints a whole picture of the kind of man he is, really. <laughs> it's he's always how... been... Um... 
Sorry, Rob. He's always been kind of quite emotionally volatile. Remember when mm. he got sent off in that charity shield? I mean, he had been punched in the face by Johnny Darwin. <laughs> I was able to say that. But he was in tears when he came off there. And I, I saw an interview um, in 1982 when Bobby Robson uh, took the England job. And he dropped Keegan from his first squad. And he, and he didn't tell him. He didn't phone him or anything. It was just kind of announced. And they interviewed Keegan to see what he thought about it. And he, well, like he was, you know, in that interview there, he's just on the verge of tears. He just can't. Can't seem to hold hold it in. He's just that classic, you know, heart on heart on the shirt kind of a fella. I think. Uh, we'll just do one more before we talk about Euro '96, and this is possibly my favourite one, mainly because it's Neil Warnock, right? Who yeah. is a temperamental sod, isn't he? But what I love about it is, is that he's having a row. It's at Sheffield United. He's having a row about who's picking up Jolie and Lescott. With I can't I can't work out who it is. It's a defender anyway. But it's the most Yorkshire argument you've ever heard as well, because they're both from Yorkshire, so it's brilliant. I mean, just have a listen to this. Oh, fucking... Let's, who has gone in? <laughs> Why have you gone in? Just the way it happened quick, and just the way it happened. Hey? Just the way it happened. Fucking... Fucking just the way it happened. Oliphant jar, a fucking cup. Listen, who do you have to pick up, you? Who, is it fucking black and white, or what? Who do you pick up, you? Let's go. And we last fucking two minutes. <laughs> Can't you fucking get it big time it comes to take a fucking kick? Can you, can you not get to pick him up by the time he gets from there to there? Whoever's in the fucking box. We, there's fucking three big ones at the back. Yeah. Side. Oh no, it's let's go one of them. Eh? It's let's go one of them. Craddock and the fucking two other big fuckers. <laughs> you pick Lesko. If one of the others scores, I don't fucking blame you. <laughs> and you pick your fucking man up. And if it's the spare man, I take the fucking blame. It's in fucking black and white, Gaffer. You pick up whoever's fucking there. So, so Lesko's got nobody on him, has he? He's, he's, he's marking him. Jeez, man. Yeah. <laughs> Have they ever put Emmerdale on after the war? <laughs> <laughs> that might be what it's like. That is sensational. It's absolutely amazing. It's... <laughs> Oh, I love that. Like, imagine how motivated you're going to be going out after that. <laughs> and is anybody any clearer about who they're actually picking up? That's the other thing. I know someone had to pick up two big fuckers. That's all I. <laughs> it's not black and white, Gaffer. <laughs> well, that's so good. I, I do. I do love before. Warnock's point at that though. Look, stop arguing with me. Pick up who I want you to pick up, yeah. and if you don't, if you score, then I get the fucking blame. <laughs> I do like. There's something about that I like actually. Right. Oh God, I have to compose myself after that now. So, uh, let's talk about Euro 96, shall we? We'll do some more managerial outbursts later when we've uh, calmed ourselves. Let's talk about Euro 96. Uh, three lines on a shirt and all that. The Indigo kit. Uh, in my view, there's a, it's a tournament. There are, there's none more 90s than this tournament. Of all the 90s things that happen, Euro 96 is probably the most 90s. Speaking of three lines... There's a line in three... I'm not going to go into this too much because we've done it all before, but there's a line in three lines, isn't there, where he says, so many jokes, so many sneers, and all those oh-so-nears. To this day, I've no idea who he's ta- what he's talking about with all those oh-so-nears. Between yeah, 1966 and 1996, we didn't qualify for a tournament for 10 bloody years. Is that what he meant? I think he just means Italian 90. I think he does, yeah. <laughs> so just that one oh-so-near is what he should have said. That one example, yeah. <laughs> Well, while we talk about it, where do we want to start with this one? Do you want to talk about England to start with, or do you want to talk about the tournament? Do England. 
Yeah, I started with England. Was it a good yeah, tournament for England or wasn't it a good tournament for England? You mean the team or the country? Go for it, whatever. Take whichever part of it you want. I think, I mean, Mike knows more about this. It's a difficult one, isn't it? Because semi-finals for a host is pretty much par, you know. Sweden in 92 got to the semis, um, certainly for a decent host anyway. And South so Korea got there. Even South Korea yeah, got to the semis. And in one sense, it's a huge missed opportunity because it wasn't a strong tournament. It was a relatively poor Germany side. <clears throat> in the other sense, in another sense, it was kind of the time of everyone's life, wasn't it? You watched that Alan Shearer documentary last year, was it last year? 2016, whenever, which I thought was really, really good. And you realised just how big an impact out on so many people. And that obviously was tied in with things beyond football, um, Cool Britannia and all that. And, and, and we know now that a lot a lot of it was cringeworthy and also it was a lot of bollocks, really. It was going nowhere. But at the time, it was, I think, as Mike said in one of his things, it, it was probably the most optimistic time in Britain, certainly in my lifetime. So in that sense, it was a triumph. It was the last bit of fun we all had before Diana died and everything changed. Yeah, and before, the internet, before <laughs> the internet. Before the internet. Before Twitter came along and ruined yeah. it for everyone. Diana's a red herring. That was obviously a blow, but trust me, the internet is the reason for society going down the swanny. <laughs> but anyway, that, that's, that's another uh, thing. So, yeah, as always with these things, it's quite nuanced, isn't it? It was a kind of... Let's go. Yeah, let, let's, pa- be more, let, let's be more. Let's be more specific then. From an England point of view, was it a good squad, Mike? Uh, yeah, I mean, well, you can you tell the quality of the squad really. But I mean, if you look at the strikers they took to that tournament, look at the strikers they uh, didn't take. Yeah, with well, Shearer, Sheringham, uh, Farrell, Ferdinand, and Nick Barmby were the five. So there's no Andy Cole, no Stan Collymore, no Ian Wright, no Ian, no, no Ian Wright. Beardsley, Letizia. Uh, Beardsley, yeah. It's incredibly strong, like, particularly up front. Um, there wasn't really anyone they didn't take that you thought, well, you know, was a, a lot of shocking exclusion or anything like that. Pallister? Um, it wasn't a shock, but... Um, yeah, I think Pallister had sciatica, I think. I think That's um, true. But he still played, you know, he played the end of the season for United. But you're right, that's not a big thing, because by then his England career was kind of winding down. Yeah, I think they probably wish they had taken. But I mean, they had a lot of trouble with kind of fitness for their centre halves when they did eventually get there. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was quite a young squad as well. It was quite adaptable. There was lots of players that could play in, you know, different positions and things. That was a bit. That was a big thing for Venables. And it's just that they they tried something different as well. Really, I think uh, that was very much a kind of sign of the times, the optimism and everything like that. And it's. Uh, there's the, just on the kind of football, really. I mean, I think you have to remember as well how far England had fallen after Italia 90. Yeah, mm-hmm. to, the, to, the, yeah. to the point where, you know, they didn't qualify for the next World Cup. So, on, in one sense, I do think it's a massive missed opportunity because they, they should have beaten that Germany team. When I, was, I think they should have scored that golden goal. But uh, You mentioning the, um, the fall after Italia 90, it always makes me remember. I can remember when Venables took over. And I went to my mate's house to watch the first friendly that they were playing on telly. And remember oh, being Denmark, yeah. yeah, and yeah. remember being like turning to your mate and going, Isn't this brilliant? Because they were actually it was they were passing the ball to each other. In that venable stuff. They were actually, you know, rolling the ball along the floor to each other. It sounds ridiculous to yeah. say it, but that's I can vividly remember being sat in my mate's bedroom 
going, this is brilliant, isn't it? Because look, look, look what's happening here. He recorded. Yeah, well, Sorry, go on. I was just going to say there'd been a clamour for Venables after Bobby Robson had left, um, and they, they, you know, they overlooked him and gave it to Taylor. And you know, after Taylor, Venables, you know, he'd just been sacked by Tottenham. There was, you know, the guy attracts legal shitstorms like, <laughs> <laughs> like pretty much no other manager in uh, in English history, I think. And he, he was so close to not happening. I mean, I remember, I remember when Venables was appointed. I remember just thinking, thank fuck, fuck thank fuck, they've got him. Because mm. um, I mean, I think the two other front runners, apart from that, were Keegan and Howard Wilkinson. He's... And if you look at how Keegan combusted at the end of '96, yeah. <laughs> under the pressure of an international tournament, and of course when, and, he, was know, England, he, when he, he was England manager, when he quit in a toilet, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he's a but the the, um, the part I was going to ask about Venables really is, and it's it's something I suppose it's an imponderable, but well, we're going to try and ponder it now. Did it help or not not having to qualify? Well, kind of, I mean, because you get that kind of microclimate then when you can, you know, you can experiment. And I think he capped 47 players in 18 games or something like that. Mm. Gave about 25 different players their debut. There's loads of players that only played once. Neil Ruddock. Neil Ruddock, Kevin Richardson, yeah. uh, Colin Super, I think. Barry, Barry Benson. John Beresford, did he games, play? Yeah. Did John Beresford play? No, no he didn't. Didn't. Didn't Cooper play against Brazil? He did. He did, yeah. yeah. I bet Ronaldo yeah. was shitting himself. <laughs> so um, on the one hand, you had that you know, window to kind of experiment and try different things. But yeah, the, the problem with that is obviously that, you know, how seriously do a lot of these teams take the friendlies? And, it's probably you know, indicative that the most memorable moment from all those friendlies was Higita's scorpion kick. There were a lot of very dull games mm. over two years. With like, with like Wembley being a third full. Yeah, exactly. But but I think Mike's right. They did the job. It allowed him to experiment so much, and not just with players, with formations as well. And obviously, as Mike said, that was a key part because they changed the formation pretty much every Do you game. Remember when he played the Christmas the tree, and the tabloids went bananas. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was the yeah, the first thing he tried. Yeah. Mm. So yeah, so it's hard to know, isn't it? Because like, one of the things that's leveled against Venables as being a good manager, he never had to. He never had to qualify for a tournament but then the flip side of it is yeah but he also never got to actually get his team uh, battle ready and match ready did he throughout a qualifying tournament which in some ways is as galvanised as having time to experiment maybe sometimes you have too much time to think if you don't have to get a game one to qualify yeah well and I guess the flip side of that is you are playing at home in the tournament it's a double-edged sword isn't it really mm. you know you get you get the home advantage but as you say, you're not you're not battle prepped. But I think a lot of teams after um after they qualify in the November of the previous year, you know, they can look great in qualifying and just that gap just seems to I don't know, it's like they forget everything they've learned kind of thing and then you see them at the tournament and they're, they're nowhere near as good as they were in qualifying. I mean England have done that loads things, of times. The twenty ten World Cup would be a classic example of that, I think. Yeah, things move on, don't they? I mean you look at when England qualified for France ninety eight with that draw in Italy, Gascoigne was sensationally good. Fast forward eight, nine months, and he's just a complete mess and obviously didn't even make the squad. So you're right. So much can change in that time. Yeah, because there was a big noise because him he didn't get he didn't get an England squad. Ali McCoyce didn't get in the Scotland squad in ninety eight, did they? We're not talking about ninety eight, <laughs> but that was a, I remember it being a big deal on TFI Friday with Chris Evans. <laughs> that's that's the time we were living back, in. <laughs> it brings us back to Euro ninety six. Which brings us back to Euro ninety six, yeah. So Talk about England's tournament. I mean, Mike, you can pick up on this. Yeah. They didn't play very well, did they? <laughs> That's the top of the <laughs> of it. 
Not really, no. I mean, they, 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 there were spells where they did. Um, the start of the second half against Scotland, where they changed formation and put Jamie Redknapp on, is basically where they won that game. Um, they were terrible in the opening game against mm. Switzerland, particularly in the second half. They just tanked completely. Um, they beat Holland 4-1. Obviously, we all know that, but that's a bit of a sugar-coated memory, I think. People seem to remember that now that you know, they dominated them, they played them off the park and all of that kind of stuff. But really, it was, you know, the goals were a penalty, a header from a corner. One was a big punt downfield that I think Sheridan scored a scramble from. But that third goal, where they the kind one, of knocked yeah, yeah. it around them and everything, that's become, you know, people assume now that England played like that for the whole game. And it's just not true. And the and Dutch in that game missed an absolute ton of chances. It could have been They had awful. Holland had more possession, more corners and more shots in that game. Yeah, it's a, think, it's a much better result than it is a performance. But to go back yeah. to the reason why we love the tournament, in a way, and that whole thing about you can't divorce sport from the emotions that you feel, is that you don't analyse a game much when you're bevied up and stood in a pub, which is basically <laughs> that's, probably that's really... how much of us just, we were just an open-mouthed disbelief, four pints deep probably in a pub, I know yeah. I was. Think for yourself, mate, I was logging <laughs> possessions for that. We shouldn't be too down on it because... It was a brilliantly ruthless counter-attacking performance, but also the third goal is just sensational. Is that the one? It's so good. Gascoigne plays a one. Yeah. yeah, but it's more than that. Gascoigne plays a one-two and just surges through. Plays it back to Sheringham. His pass, his disguised pass, is so good. It's just so soft. It almost dribbles to Shearer. Wrongfoot's defender who slips over, and then Shearer just roofs it. What I like about that pass from Sheringham is that it's just brilliant. It's I like so passes Sheringham. like that where you can look at it and go, nobody else could have done that. Yeah, it or just would have even up. done that. Yeah. Everything going around him, everything's so frenetic. He's just like, slow down, everyone. Just, he's, I just to me, that just sums up the brilliance of a really underrated player. But that's then, another story. Yeah, we then went to um, the quarterfinals, where they were they we were, were slaughtered. We were absolutely slaughtered. Yeah. Was it? Julio Salinas had a perfectly good goal, just allowed for offside. Mm. Yeah, there were there were at least three penalties that Spain should have got. Um, I mean, said that Shearer missed from two yards as well. Shearer missed from two yards. Well, there's a penalty England should have got in extra time as well. Oh, that's right. But it was it was just a brutally tense afternoon, particularly the extra time because it was the first time most people had seen the golden goal uh, kind of innovation that came in for that tournament. It's meant to like you know open the game up and they, both teams will start attacking each that other. That went well, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. They just did completely the opposite, but. Um, you know, you did get to see England win, win their one and only penalty shootout to date. So. I remember everyone talking about how Seaman had this. You remember that whole Seaman's got a trick with penalty and he wouldn't tell anybody and stuff. And everyone thought we cracked it because Seaman's got this trick. And then, of course, we just went straight back to losing penalty shootouts yeah. like we always do. <laughs> there is no trick to it. We're just shite when it comes to I this think it, stuff. I think he did have a trick, but the problem is it's like... Um... Germany had an even bigger trick, so that's trumped him basically by, roof, was... by roofing every penalty into the top. <laughs> yeah. of, Hitting the side one, that, yeah. There was only one that he almost got. I think it was was it Reuter, Mike? But apart from that, yeah, he got hands to Reuter's one, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, oh, so yeah Spain, but... Spain were a really good side, but I suppose the thing is, what I would say is, it's it's quite like Italian ninety, and England played very well against Holland and Germany, and actually didn't do a lot against the other teams and scrambled through the quarters. But what I would say is. With the exception of the really great sides, most teams do blunder through a tournament. Most teams who get to a semi-final, there's a lot of blundering as well as brilliance. So I don't think we should be too harsh on them. 
And they also they played such a kind of sophisticated, lightened style that I think that cut them a bit of slack as well. Yeah, because um, going back to the Scotland game, I, again, I have a very, very vivid memory of that of that second half opening minutes of the second half when Redknapp came on. It's all Redknapp, yeah. And, it, yeah. and he just basically just started linking. McManaman looked like a different player when Redknapp. It's came a proper on. sliding yeah. sliding door in his career because he um he got injured just before the end. He played so well. Venables really liked him. He had a bet with a journalist. I think it was Joe Lovejoy that. Redknapp would get more caps than Beckham. <clears throat> that was in the summer of 96. And he, you could tell he wanted to get him into his team. He couldn't quite find a place, except when he played three at the back. But anyway, he got injured. And you think, had he not, he would surely have played against Holland. He would probably have played later in the tournament because Platt played a couple of games when people were suspended. I think Ince was missed a game and Neville. Um, <clears throat> Redknapp would have played those. And you think, you know, the way he was playing, his confidence was so high. His career could have gone in a completely different direction. Well, he never he never played at a tournament again. No, exactly. You uh, think that? Right. God, yeah. What would he be? Twenty twenty two or something? You think? Twenty two. Yeah. You think it'll come again, but it doesn't. Well, exactly. Because yeah. he was all class, wasn't he, when he was on form? The um, that Scotland game. We've we've skipped over the Scotland game without mentioning that Yuri Geller said that the collective will of the nation made Gary McAllister's penalty ball move. Yeah. Or he kicked uh, it. There were a lot of hangers on, weren't there? Around <laughs> really were, were there? like Yuri Geller's kind of the Keith Allen of. Um, <laughs> well, I remember him saying that on telly. I was like, "Are you still a thing, Yuri Geller? Where, where have you been? But <laughs> somehow you're on telly now, talking about." Uh... In fairness, though, it was bloody weird, wasn't it? It was very weird. It is. It is because it is. It's been sat there motionless, hasn't it? For yeah. God knows how long. There'll be some scientist who can tell us. Any scientists out there listening can tell us that Nessa Dormapod why that ball might have moved. So it's that, really strange, actually, that McAllister decided to blast that because he took a penalty against the CIS in the 92 European Championship where he just kind of casually stroked it into the corner. And he wasn't just generally a blaster of, anyway, was he? Pressure, pressure, yeah, with the pressure of, you know, that game, you know, when we everything the, the way the match was going, I just thought, he just thought, sod it, roof it. Scotland played well in that game. Played well in most of the tournament, actually. Yeah, they were really glorious failure as usual. It's quite sad. Yeah, they beat Switzerland obviously and drew with Holland, and it took Clivert's goal, which made it four-one. Obviously, as most people know, that put Scotland out, which kind of in one way made it a perfect night for England. But I think the more kind of generous spirited people would have wanted Scotland to go through. But anyway, they didn't. Do you want to talk about England versus Germany and the failure? Or do you want to talk about the knockout rounds generally before we get to that? Well, the, I suppose the big point about the knockout rounds is seven games. I think it was nine goals. Yeah, Four, more, than, more than half of them went to penalties. I think that's that's the kind of exhibit A in the argument that the tournament was a bit of a stinker outside England, Germany, Croatia and the Czech Republic. Um, but, yeah, it's hard to argue against that, really. I mean, But, but I suppose the point is, we've said this for the Italian 90 as well, that often the tournament is as much about a mood as the actual content for one of a better word i mean it almost didn't matter you know you're certainly not in this country everyone was so swept up with it um apart from the the people apart from the people buying tickets of course yeah well yeah but they were yeah that's true like the early group games that didn't involve england there were like two men in the scout at most of them it was it was really weird um but i suppose by the knockout stage everyone was so like mike said it all starts with the holland game sorry the gascoigne's goal against scotland and from there until england are knocked out like everyone was just in a frenzy really and it was the details of the games almost didn't matter did anybody go to any games? Out of us three. I didn't. I, I, was, I didn't, know. The actual, the, the Scotland game was my last day of first year at university, which is like a perfect situation. Which I was is, absolutely, is, I was ma- Pongo 
kickoff, it was a disgrace. It's mad though, isn't it? Think about we'd have been probably, I think you're a bit younger than me, Mike, but you, we'd have been of an age where you think, we, wow, this tournament at home, you can still get tickets. Yeah. I was, I, I, was I, I didn't live far away from Liverpool in the summer. I'd finished uni. I could have gone. It's weird that I didn't go. Really odd. Yeah, I was doing my A-levels then. But I, I think it tells you a bit about where football was at at that point. I mean, if you held a World Cup here now, I'm yeah. convinced that every game would be sold out. But that, that sense of event, kind of just... It, it wasn't there for Euro 96. It was, um, and it's interesting how really. when you go after Euro 96, England friendly start to sell out, don't they? Massively. It changed, it changed football completely. Euro 96 created a culture Euro 96 could have done with in the sense that it kind of raised the interest in foreign football as well as gentrifying football and all that. If you look at the people who came in in 96 to English football, people like Viali, Ravanelli, Zola, uh, Berger, Paborski, loads of fairly big foreign players. It was... It kind of completed the process that started at Italian 90, really, in terms of changing English football. So the quarter emperor. So the quarterfinals in Euro 96, for those of you who don't remember, was France nil and Netherlands nil. France won on penalties. Czech Republic won, Portugal nil. Germany two, Croatia one, and then obviously England beat Spain on penalties four two. Spain have I mean, I mean, Spain's record in shootouts isn't fantastic either, is it? So that was like a. It wasn't the incredibly no, the yeah, incredibly no. movable force meets the very moving object or something. I don't know in kinds of <laughs> in terms of how they do it. So that meant France versus the Czech Republic and then Germany versus England. Come to Germany versus England in a minute in the semis. But Rob, this this is a time in which and you mentioned this that France the the emergence of the, there was a, a kernel of that France team that came around in ninety eight and two thousand, wasn't there? Yeah, there was. They weren't a great side at that point, but most of the players who won the World Cup in 98 played, including Zidane. I think all the back four played. Um, but generally speaking, I think it was a tournament between two great generations of players. Like, there weren't many world-class players at the peak. Samer, the German sweeper, who was glorious. Alan Shearer, obviously. People like Davos Schuker, um and someone else who I've completely Paborski. forgotten. Yeah, but I suppose he was more emergent. Yeah, he was young, wasn't he? he was but I suppose Seaman might be the other one. But I, but yeah, there was. I mean, the interesting thing, though, is that there are other teams who didn't emerge in the same way. So, for example, when people talk about England beating Holland or thrashing Holland, they say, well, hang on a minute. Two years later, Holland got to the World Cup semis and could have won the tournament. But actually, there are only I think there are only four players who played against England who started the World Cup semi-final. Van der Sar... Ronald De Boer, Bergkamp, Reisiger. So they kind of, it just, I think it was a weak tournament and there were, it kind of somehow fitting that one of the players of the tournament, if not the player of the tournament, was Dieter Eiltz, a 31-year-old German water carrier. Uh, he was a bloody good player, but he was a 31-year-old German water carrier. It just, it, there weren't that many great players at their peak. It were either players who were over the hill or emerging. Like Zidane, Zidane didn't do a lot in the tournament, but you could tell he was going to be a great player. A little sidebar, though, people do forget is that Stoichkov did play in the tournament and scored in every game he played. He scored a brilliant goal. <laughs> oh, I love yeah. his goal against Romania when it's just like classic Stoichkov. Basically, get from A to B as quickly as you can. He just runs straight through them and toe bungs it really impatiently <laughs> through the keeper. It's fantastic. Yeah, it's like it was 10 some... touches with his left foot, isn't it? Just yeah. Keeps it, keeps it on his <laughs> left foot. There were some great goals, actually. I mean, Davos Schuka scored a couple. I love the one against Germany in the quarters when he drags the ball over with his studs. Mm. Like you cannot do, and you do that in a European Championship quarterfinal. Come on, um, Paborski scoop, of course, which everyone remembers. Gascoigne's volley, which is the most perfect moment. Never mind goal. There were, I think, there were great, and that's always a good barometer of a tournament. I think, um, and there were a lot of great goals. There weren't probably were there any great games. Uh, maybe Russia and the Czech Republic. Uh, yeah, well, that was quite, was quite exciting. Yeah, uh, particularly for the dramatic knock-on effect on Italy and um, 
Yeah, Barry Davis, who was commentating yeah. on Italy. And yeah, that's true. Italy had an absolute mare, of course, didn't they? Well, they, yeah, they started well. They beat Russia, played well. Then he made about six changes. Origo Saki against the Czechs. Um, sorry, against the Czech Republic. Um, Poborski gave Maldini an absolute chasing, and they won 2 1. There was one weird incident in that game when Apollonia, the centre back, was sent off for a second yellow. Mm. And it must play must have gone on for about a minute after he fouled the bloke until the ball went dead and then he got the second yellow. Just imagine him for that minute absolutely shitting himself thinking, <laughs> maybe the longer it goes on, maybe I'm going to get away with this, maybe. And then he didn't. And that basically meant they had to either beat Germany or depend on other results. And Zola missed a penalty and so on and so on. And yeah, they cocked it up. It wasn't a bad Italy. You talk about, you know, good sides. That was a good side. That was yeah. a good Italy side, that was actually. Probably what, when you, yeah, because if you looked at all the squads, that point you made about some Rob, about some squads not being quite up to it. The Italy one, actually, on paper, you'd have thought, you know what, given looking at the other squads, Italy got should be well within a shout of winning this. Maybe. Yeah, they were, they were one of the favourites, certainly, I think, mm. Italy. And, um, yeah. yeah, I think uh, it was quite a coup for the Premier League when they signed Viali and Ravinelli because they, they both started up front for Juventus in the Champions League final in 96. And then a couple of months later, they, they both arrived in the Premier League. It was. Uh, and a couple of months later, he, he pulled up on his car in Middlesbrough, Ravinelli. Yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. But Italy, that, I think that was the height of, like, you know, Gazetta football, Italia. Um, oh. You know, they were such a glamorous side. And it would have been one of the only sides that people knew, you know, a bit about outside of England and Scotland, I think, you know, yeah, within yeah. Uh, within Britain. And, you know, they didn't, they didn't pick Roberto Baggio. They didn't pick Signori. You know, they had Del Piero, who's just on the bench, who's like the you know the big emerging player. They dropped Kazaragi after the first game after he scored twice. It's just <laughs> it's just seemed like with all those options, they just, you know they were gonna go a long way in the tournament and they didn't. Too much choice. Round about this time, and this is probably a discussion, you know, about the, the you know, the, the, the foreign invasion, if you like, round about this time. But I'll only mention it because we've mentioned some of the players that came over, because Berger came, didn't he, after this tournament and stuff like that. Yeah. And it's it um Patrick Berger from Czech Republic, that is. And I can still remember the borderline disbelief every time you read the paper. From my point of view, you know, every time he announced the signing in the paper, I'd be yeah. like, I can't believe that he is going there. Like Ravenelli, Giannini, <clears throat> and a bit later, Giannini. There was always this constant, from my point of view, I can't believe these people are coming to England. That point about it changing English football forever. Yeah. Well, this is, um, this is six months on from the Bosman ruling, so it kind of... Ah, right. He gave, yeah, you, the, course, he gave yeah. you the opportunity. And I think the Premier League, they, they re-signed their deal with uh, B Sky B just before Euro 96 started, which dwarfed the, the big 1992 deal. So, you know, all the English clubs suddenly, you know, they, they can sign anyone in Europe, basically, or put an offer in for them. And, you know, they've got the opportunity to do that. And also it, it, it assisted, you know, Newcastle breaking the world transfer record to get Alan Shearer. I think United, for the Charity Shield in 96 against Newcastle, United started with Jordi Cruyff and Paborski on the bench, didn't they, Rob? I think they did, and yeah. They played the same team that played the cup final the previous year. Yeah, so the two of the kind of, you know, well, not so much Cruyff, but Paborski, one of the standout players of the tournament. And then I think Zola signing, I think that was... November, yeah, and of course... Yeah, a, a big thing for the Premier League, because he was, you know... A genuine Most bona fide superstar, yeah. Do you yeah, know what was when Chelsea had signed Hoyer, I think what was what was he then? Thirty five? Yeah. yeah, yeah just was... a kind of farewell tour kind of thing. But... Do you know what was also a big thing was um obviously Venga Arsenal Wenger joining Arsenal, but also Patrick Vieira looking so good so quickly. Because he was unknown, but also he was young and on the way up, and that was quite unusual. 
Um, it's interesting what Mike says about money. I, there were even a couple of unconfirmed rumours that um, Fabrizio Ravanelli went to Middlesbrough for the money. That was, really? that was, that was a joke. That yeah, I, just, I was reading something, but yeah, I realised, yeah. <laughs> I spent was, my four years. Banter. I spent my four years of university in Middlesbrough, and I'm very, very upset and offended that you can say. <laughs> I, I, I love. It was such yeah. a weird time that was in Middlesbrough. Such a weird. But, time. but you're right. You almost felt as an English football fan. You must. Um, you almost felt like, uh, like, what, what, why me? Why, why, why are these players coming over here? You know, it's almost like because mm. someone really attractive had taken an interest in you. You wonder what the catch, <laughs> the catch was. That's why we didn't understand it at the time. Yeah. <laughs> Semi-finals, France um, played the Czech Republic. Czech Republic won on penalties. And then, of course, in the other semi-final, in the words of Des Lynham, you may have heard there's a football match going on. Mm. Um, Germany versus England. Well, that basically, that felt like a final, really, didn't it? The yeah. way it was built up. Um, yeah, but should it have done? You're right, it did. It's the same as in 1990 with Argentina. Wait, but you wonder, like, was that slightly it was, misplaced? It was the humans? same in Euro 2000 in the bloody group game. Was that your yeah, idea, but, yeah, because of who it was, and you know they were they they are the yardstick in European football. But because of all the build up, and I'm I'm sure we'll come on to the uh, Actung surrender oh, and all of that yeah. uh, nonsense in a second. But um, I think even it wasn't just England though. Even Quinsman said after the after they'd won, or oh, that that match tonight was the final. Mm. She's you now very uh, disrespectful to the Czech Republic. <laughs> she you know had a great tournament and was 17 um, minutes from winning it. On one level, imagine how funny it would have been had England plugged Germany 4-0 and then lost 1-0 to the Czechs on penalties. <laughs> imagine that. Well, as sure as night follows day, it would have happened because this is England. <laughs> but, uh, the, um, yeah, to touch on that Aktung thing, it was... Did it, I can't remember. I remember the act. It was the Daily Mirror, wasn't it? The Aktung front page. Yeah, it's Piers Morgan. What I remember most about it as well is how terrible the graphics were. They'd like superimposed a tin helmet on Gaza doing one of his gurns. And I remember thinking, seriously, is that the best design department could come up with? Because it was absolutely awful. You know, style aside, it was disgraceful anyway. <laughs> what I can't remember is did it just happen then or had it been building throughout the tournament? Yeah, Spain. They did it with Spain as did well. They? Michael, yeah. no more. Apparently, just before I had him because he doesn't know more about this, but apparently Piers Morgan in an editorial interview was talking about things they could bash about Spain and one of his suggestions was Mussolini. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's true. That's seriously that's What did he say about yeah. Spain then, Mike? Was it Armada well, he, stuff he, he and all that? He published a Syphilis. list of um, 10 nasties that yeah, Spain... Yeah, what? Seriously? Honestly, Jesus. Yeah, Syphilis. Syphilis, carpet bombing... Uh, Oh my god! <laughs> in the, you know the Holland game, he put out these things like suggestions: "Oh, don't drink Heineken, don't wear clogs, and all this kind of stuff." But with the Germany thing, I mean, I don't even remember this. Just before the tournament started, there was a big uh, campaign to get Jeff Hurst's hat trick ball back from the 1966 World Cup final, which Helmut Haller, one of the German players, had kind of picked up at the end of the game and just walked off with. And the Mirror <laughs> and the Sun both ran a campaign. You know, it's a bit rich from a country that holds on to the Elgin marbles, kind of, you know, saying, <laughs> yes. oh, we want our ball back. It's a national treasure and all this. And it was all based with all the, you know, usual Second World War, cod German accent, all that kind of stuff, getting quotes from Bernard Manning to see what he thought of it and all this. Uh, so it actually, it did, yeah, it didn't, it didn't just start in the week leading up to the um, semi-final, but it reached a bit of a critical mass. It wasn't just a mirror either, the sun, the star. Well, that's that's another example of how it was an era changing because, you know, that must have been the last time they went to Bernard Manning for a quote on anything. 
<laughs> so the fact that he was still a thing then, that was probably the last time he was ever a thing in popular culture, probably yeah. apart from as a, do you remember, Bird of Mine sort of thing. Yeah, do you remember well, the dark days? <laughs> to research the book, I had to spend quite an unhealthy amount of time with in Bird of Mine. From 1996, and there's a lot of that kind of, you know, when England's... Uh, played in China just before the tournament. You know, I won't say what some of the headlines were, but it just oh, God. It's so offensive. People would be getting sacked for this kind of thing now. But it just went it, completely just under the radar. It led to, um, the Mirror stuff led to possibly my favourite ever piece of one-upmanship. The Sun editor was on Channel 4 News talking about it, and he said the Sun has maintained the jingoistic approach rather than the xenophobic one. I just thought <laughs> that was fantastic. So England played Germany anyway. It was a horrible build-up in the press that we just covered. Um, England's best game of the tournament? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think they played their best in that game. Um, it's a really good match, actually, particularly, uh, particularly the golden goal extra time, the first period, the 15 minutes, when they have a couple of really good chances each to settle the game. And mm. it's the one time the golden goal period in that tournament, anyway, did what it was designed to do. They just kind of, I don't know if it was like a, a memory of Italia 90 that forced England into going for it a bit more. And you know the prospect of having to face Germany on penalties again, but yeah, they were they were really good on the night. I mean, the one strange thing about the game is that Venables didn't make any serve, the, did he? The only match in the tournament, he didn't make any substitutions. Yeah, because wasn't there a big it. noise about him? He should have brought Nick Barnby on to take a penalty and stuff like that. We well, could have brought Fowler on. I was thinking, Fowler on. imagine Fowler in that form at that point in his career, coming on after about hundred minutes yeah. with the chance of being an absolute hero. Yeah. Strange Fowler, one. Yeah, Fowler at that point. I mean, you were thinking, Jesus, this kid's going to be Jimmy Greaves the, you know, the, mm. after the you know the three seasons he's had. Well, we should say about the goal and goal period, and I forget the timing. I think it was between Anton and Hickman the post and Gascoigne's miss. Is that Kunz had a goal disallowed for nothing, basically. Mm. It was it was ostensibly it was pushing at a corner, but it was very, very soft. Yeah, so it wasn't was a... just that England were unlucky. Having said that, England had the first chance, I think, when Anderton hit the post, so you can say that they had the first opportunity. Yeah. I mean the thing is you do chaos theory these chances because you know if they go in the game's the game's over. Yeah. So it well, there was that... start, starts with Anderton really, but and even Anderton's miss, which is first, has been superseded by you know, Gascoigne's in everyone's memory, really. Yeah. The Anderton miss, do you blame him or do you blame his McManaman's pullback slightly behind him? Uh, it's, it's a really bad pullback, I think, because he really yeah. has to reach for it, Anderton. I mean, yeah, I think it should have been. But, you know, if it, if it had been any softer, probably Cockle would have got there. Yeah. It's, it's a really difficult chance. Mm. You know, it's funny when you talk about... Even when you watch something about sport... And I think we said this before about this kind of muscle memory in the brain that even now when I watch that game and Gaza just misses that ball, I still almost jump out of my seat, even though I know exactly what is coming. <laughs> it's the funniest thing ever. And imagine if you're Paul Gascoigne and having to watch that all the time. Well, well, Venable said he dreams about it a lot, doesn't he? He said he thinks about it pretty much every day, didn't he? Yeah. He wasn't joking either. He kind of chuckled ruefully at the end. But, um, <laughs> but the other thing yeah, is, imagine how Gascoigne would have celebrated. He'd probably still be probably still be running now, just to yeah. top off straight down the tunnel. It just, I, it's, that's possibly the great lost celebration. Yeah, Gaza scoring. It's really frustrating because it, that Gaza as well, that that period exactly. Gaza scoring a golden goal would have been. I mean, for all the negative stuff that came afterwards, and maybe some of the questionable stuff he might have been doing at the time to himself. I mean. 
um, yeah, imagine well, there that, was a lot, that Gaza. Yeah, there was a lot of kind of redemptive moments in that tournament. I mean, Stuart Pearce against Spain, scoring right. a penalty. Um, Tony Adams always references the Holland game as revenge for Fantastic. the 1988 European Championship when Van Basten mm. took him to the cleaners. But Gaza, that would have been the ultimate one, you know, against six years yeah. on from Italian. What I love about Stuart Pearce's celebration against Spain is that only Stuart Pearce could... There was obviously two years of kind of internal shame and self-loathing that came out. In that. But six on, years? Yeah, sorry, yes, six but years. Yeah. And, um, um, <laughs> but only he could express such kind of joy and relief in the shape of basically pure rage. <laughs> yeah, he, was, yeah. he, he still looked absolutely fuming somehow. Well, given, uh, <laughs> given that reaction, it's probably best that he didn't have to keep a lid on it for the rest of his life because yeah, you know, yeah. One, one small thing I love about Pierce is that the season after Italian 90 he scored something like 17 goals he was just on one all season like an absolutely murderous purpose to make up for what happened he was fantastic so yeah so England lose on we trot <laughs> inevitably England lose to um with, I mean, we, I don't want to go into the Southgate penalty too much. It happened, didn't it? It's been done to death. Anyone to, unless anyone wants to mention anything specifically about the Southgate penalty. One one thing which is absolutely weird is bef- just as he's walking up, Kopka, the German goalkeeper, hoofs the ball off the bar yeah. so that Southgate, and it rebounds behind Southgate, so he has to turn round All right. and walk and get it, that. and it just adds to his nervousness. But it's just so weird. Like, how could a goalkeeper... It, Kopka's not, it's not like he's under it. He's like 10, 18 yards away or something. Wax, it's just really weird. There's one question that's never been resolved for me about that penalty shootout. Yeah. Where was Paul Ince when the needed when there was some governing was, to be done? Sat he was sitting the facing the other way, yeah. <laughs> and of course, what happened then is he took so much stick that he took one against Argentina two years missed. later when he and and missed it. It was, it was, it was a, a dreadful penalty, penalty wasn't it? Yeah, you actually looked at it, there weren't many. Who were the other options? Adams, um, Anderton, McManaman, Anderton, Anderton McManaman. I mean, yeah, those are quite persuasive options, really. Well, Anderson um, was seventh. Anderson was down to go after seventh. What's McManaman doing that late? And I, I know you don't think of him as a bald striker, but even so, come on, compared to yeah. Southgate. Um, but yeah, I, apparently, um, I think it was Fowler who was down to take the fifth one against Spain, which never happened. Obviously, he wasn't on the pitch against Germany. Yeah. The other thing that always struck me about that is that, and this happens a lot with the hosts, is that England are having a party right up to the moment Southgate misses. Like, there's no sense of the jeopardy at all. You look at Gascon when he scores, and yeah. he's striking like a peacock and everything, and Sheringham. And, and then it's just weird that there's almost no... Obviously, there's tension, but it's like people didn't realise just how close they were to the abyss. And then Southgate misses, and that's it. Well, and Ga- that's actually, yeah, Gascoigne knows, actually, but as soon as Southgate misses, uh, Gascoigne yeah. just throws his water bottle on the floor yeah, you know before Muggers even kicked it. Yeah, I would just one quick thing on that shootout is that my favourite moment of the whole tournament actually is there are about three penalties into it each, and uh, Gascoigne just kind of goes over the kind of gap between the two groups of players, and just has a bit of chat with Sammer in sort of some kind of German Geordie hybrid. I don't know what kind of conversation <laughs> they had, but about the chance that he'd missed an extra time, and it's. I love the way great players need the acknowledgement of other great players. <laughs> yeah. Like Samma just gives him a little affectionate pat on the head and you know, after after everything that had gone on that week as well, I thought. It says a lot about um, you know, I don't want to go into Gascoigne's psychology, but something about that not very hidden insecurity that he quite clearly has. <laughs> despite his yeah. great, his greatness and despite his brilliance, yeah. 
it comes from somewhere where he's quite afraid most of the time, I think. That's true. Having said, he took a belting penalty as well. Yeah. Well, he was just... I think there's missing. something about... The, the, at Rangers, they just let him be him, haven't they? They've just gone, this is your team, son. Just be yourself. Just be you. And, it, yeah, and that, that had got him in trouble a couple of times. But there's <laughs> yeah. something about... That's what, that's what came to 96. After all of his injuries, after all of his problems, that's what we got. He, I mean, he had a mixed tournament, didn't he? He was crap against Switzerland. Um, and he had a dodgy game against Spain. But you're right. Well, I mean, Venables knew exactly what, what buttons to push and when with him. Um, he was probably the perfect manager for him. Of course. And for, for anyone, really. England then brilliant... lose, and the worst aspects of British football culture come rushing out as well, and we all kick the shit out of everything. <laughs> didn't 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 a Russian bloke get beaten up in some he town somewhere? Yeah, yeah, student, stabbed, yeah, in Brighton. Because yeah. they thought he was German. I mean, it's not funny, but it is, in a way, it's just, it's it's... It amuses you the level of idiocy in some ways, and it's just yeah. There was BMWs being smashed up and Audis, and there was uh, I think there were two hundred arrests in Trafalgar Square. It was the worst trouble since the poll tax riots. Um, in a lot of retrospectives you see about Euro '96, that's kind of glossed over. That uh... imagine if they called it the German tax. Woof, the whole country would. Have been <laughs> but yeah, it's um, and then we go on to the final, which wasn't the best, was it? Not the best, but it was a bit of an afterthought, really. It's amazing how quickly the papers lost interest in the tournament after England went out. After their run really started against Scotland, there was, you know, St George's, you know, flags on the front of all the tabloids every day. And as soon as England were out, that went. And, you know, if you got to the coverage in the build-up to the final, it it kind of petered off a bit. They started talking about, you know, the cricket and Wimbledon and all this kind of other stuff. Uh, But actually, the, the final... Wasn't too bad for a, a kind of major tournament final. I think it was made level by the fact that the Germans had so many players out injured to the point where they actually prepared outfield shirts for their goalkeepers because they didn't think oh they were going to have. really? Did they? Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah I wow. think they, they had to send four players home with quite serious injuries during the tournament. And you weren't allowed to re- replace them. Then they had Muller and Reuter suspended for the final. And they were carrying four other injuries as well. They basically just threw Jurgen Klinsmann out for the final. He was nowhere near, you know, fit enough to take part in the game. But then, yeah, they threw on Oliver Bierhoff and he won it for them. The team of the tournament, just to recap if people don't remember, the squad of the tournament, if you like, was Mm. goalkeepers of Seaman and Kopka. Defenders were Radislav Latal from the Czech Republic, Laurent Blanc, Desai, Matthias Zammer, Paolo Maldini. That's not a bad... uh, if you had that in your squad, you wouldn't. No. That'd be all Maldini's, right. Maldini's, Maldini's a bit fun. generous. He got yeah, chasing that's, from that's the That's because the other thing is, he's written in there before the tournament starts. That's, he's fair, yeah. every tournament. that's a very starstruck inclusion. That, the Samoan's Sam interesting because he did have a great tournament and he was a brilliant sweeper, but he actually made a cock-ups in quite a few games. Italy made a cock-up, led to a penalty. He gave away the penalty in the final, even though it was outside the box. Didn't he make a quite a bad cock-up, led to Croatia's goal as well, I think. Um, yeah, he did, yeah. He so it was, having said that, in possession, he was sensational. But yeah, slightly mixed kind of memories of his tournament. Midfielders were Karol Poborski. Yeah, he Uni- was brilliant. United bound Poborski. Uh, Steve McManaman, Gaza, Didier Deschamps, and Dieter Eilts, as you said, uh, you've already mentioned, Rob, and Rui Costa. And then the forwards was the legendary 27 touches with his left foot, Risto Stoichkov, Davos Shuker, Pavel Kuka from. Czech Republic, Alan Shearer and Yuri Djorkiev. Djorkiev, yeah, he was quite good. Shukev was fantastic. He was yeah, so he was. charming because he wasn't that well known because I don't know if La Liga was on Sky at that point, but it certainly wasn't watched by many. And as well as scoring two great goals, he almost chipped Schmeichel from the halfway line 
And um, my, as Mike said, he was talking about acknowledgement of great players. There's a nice moment when Schmeichel kind of pats it down on the line and then just puts his thumb up to say, like, yeah, fair play. <laughs> um, he was fantastic. I think Croatia were one of the last kind of great voyages into the unknown for people because they'd only, yeah. they'd only been readmitted into UEFA, I think, in 1993. And the qualifying for Euro 96, that's the first tournament that they'd, they'd entered. Um, and they had all these players kind of dotted around, you know, big clubs in Europe, but you just hadn't seen them. I think going into 1996, only 2% of Britain had the internet. So, you know, yes. you couldn't really research this stuff. So, you know. <laughs> You know, you know, if you read World Soccer, you know, you might you might be a bit more up on it. But um, actually That's seeing a... them in the flesh for the first time, they're and they're you know quite a striking kit and all that kind of stuff. That's really added good... to the appeal of Croatia, I think. It's a good point about the experience of it as well. No internet. As there's a nice line from Noel Gallagher. It might be in Supersonic when he says, talking about Nebuthal won the concerts, and he says like yeah. no one's in the air with camera phones or anything. People are actually experiencing it. And that's kind of gone now with major tour. Certainly gone now, and it went quite soon after '96 because by '98, 2000, the internet was fairly normal um, and widespread. So it was kind of one of the last tournaments that you actually experienced in and of itself. Yeah, the, I mean, the Croatians are proper players in that team. You got Robert. Did Boxic? Did Boxic play? Or was he on the bench? Boxic, I think he he broke his nose or something in the first game, and then they they played uh, Goran Vlajevic. He scored a good um, goal against. Turkey, was Turkey, yeah, yeah, where he went around the keeper, yeah. They had some good players. Yeah, lovely. I used to love Asanovic. He went to Derby after the tournament. Oh, yeah, all left. Stimac, Stimac was at Derby already, wasn't he? Bilic was yeah. already at West Ham. Pozanecki, Boban, the, <laughs> Bilic, the, yeah. the very young they Dario actually, Simic. They lost a header bit against Germany, didn't they? Was it Stimac who was sent off? Um, but, but they had Germany at one point. When Schuker equalised. After they equalised, yeah, and then they got they they lost the man straight away, and then Sammer went straight up the other end and scored. But that's right. Yeah, it's quite a thuggish game. That I think Quinsman had to come off. He got injured quite badly in a tackle. It was, uh, yeah, it was definitely the best, probably the best knockout game I think in yeah. terms of excitement was the uh, Croatia Germany game. It's quite interesting that England's great tournament that is always remembered by you know defined by England's campaign. And not only was it won by Germany, they also appropriated England's song. When they got yeah. home, they would sing three lines, weren't they? Kind of, that was kind of the last kind of. I can remember unreasonably. I can remember unreasonably fuming about that when I saw it on the television because <laughs> yeah. it was Klinsman as well, which made it yeah. even worse. Imagine it's, a, it's a wonderful bit of Schadenfreude, I think, given what they'd had to put up no, with. I think it's funny yeah. now to look back, but as a, yeah. as a twenty-year-old, it was still a little bit upset. Yeah, it was a. I never forget them. When they scored that golden goal, it showed them all running off. I remember thinking, "You bastards!" I mean, I just that was so fuming because it was something about what could have been, you know. Yeah. So, and then as a postscript, then how long was it after then this that Venables then went because of yet another? It was already arranged. It was. Oh, was it? Yeah. It was arranged like February, I think. So we knew going into the tournament. Such a shame. Because I mean, was in court again, didn't he? I think. Oh yeah, Michael. No, I think they just lost patience, didn't they? It was. Yeah, I think the um, the FA International Committee, as it was, uh, said to him they wouldn't renew his contract until after the the tournament, and well, just to wait and see how he did in competitive games. And Venables just turned around to them and said, "I don't do auditions." <laughs> and then, uh, and fair play, said That's, David yeah. Brent. Oh, he's right. But yeah, they gave the um, they gave the job to Hoddle in May of '96, I think. And early on, Hoddle ins- insisted on coming to England training sessions and watching the players and stuff. And it actually led to quite a big rift between um, Venables and Hoddle. Where oh, Venables just had to tell him to piss off eventually and stuff, uh, <laughs> stuff interfering. That sounds like the office, Brent hanging around. 
the fellow who nicked me job and everything. Um, so bizarre. One thing, Venables is quite interesting because a lot of people, a lot of good judges, including our own Gary Naylor, don't think much of him as a coach. I think he was a fantastic coach. And I think the biggest um, kind of reflection of that is you just listen to the players, particularly the England players from that period, yeah. talk about him. They're just gushing about him. But, and, and he actually, he's, it's quite rare to get somebody who's such a brilliant man manager and such a brilliant tactician. Yeah. And he had, I, to me, he had everything. And people say he didn't win much. Fair enough. But what's he supposed to win? He generally wasn't at clubs who won trophies. The exception is Barcelona, where he did brilliantly, won the first title in 10 years or so, almost won their first European Cup but for penalties again. I thought he was a fantastic coach. And the thing is, he was 53, I think, when that tournament ended. And we hardly saw him again. Obviously, no, he had no, about yeah, Australia, sure, yeah. Palace, Middlesbrough, Leeds. Such a shame, because I I thought he was a fantastic coach. I think really. people's... Sorry, Rob. I think no. people's view of him now is kind of covered by what's happened since Euro 96. But if you got you stay with the penalties in, uh, with Barcelona, you got them to their first ever European Cup final. They lost it on penalties. They lost the Euro 96 semi-final and penalties you know that's just a couple of shootouts away from being you know an almost Clough-esque level of you know genius really if, if you know if it's an England manager thing, with a European though. Cup and an international I think on the flip yeah. side of it though as we've mentioned the, the squads weren't great we were playing at home you know he had but sometimes it doesn't run for you does it but I think that's what people that's why people say he's overrated because actually if he was so good he should have been able to you know more than any other tournament, you should have been able to win that one. That's true, but there are so many variables, aren't there? I think a lot of it was perception and prejudice. The fact he looked like a, a villain from Minder didn't help him at all. <laughs> yeah. I genuinely do. I, and, and yet the funny thing is, he was so much more enlightened than so many more kind of ostensibly intelligent coaches. And he would have been perfect for that transition to a more continental style in England because he was years ahead of his time, really. You look at all the, his peers, most of them became dinosaurs, the obvious exception being Alex Ferguson, who was a genius. Venables would have been able to cope at any kind of period in English football history. It's a real shame. Holder was great, but you think of Venables with the 98 team, the emergence of Beckham, Skulls, Owen, um, Gary Neville becoming older. They might have won. It was was an interesting period as well because both him and Hoddle went for reasons not really anything to do with football. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, And... Yeah, Hoddle was another one I'm sure we'll do. He was an excellent coach. The only thing is, by 98, the competition was a lot stronger. There were four or five teams who would have been worthy winners of that tournament. Hmm. Even though England were a bloody good side, I wouldn't quite put them at that level. So there you go. Euro 96, everybody. I hope you've enjoyed our little gallop through that. We're going to just finish off with some more manager outbursts. Um, first of all, I'd like to talk that Schutz on Twitter got in touch, and he suggested... Jock Wallace speaking to a Scottish TV reporter. Have you seen this one? What, yeah, absolutely. What you can't, well, you've heard, you're going to hear it. What you can't see is that before he starts doing this with the reporter, he does a, a fainted pretend headbutt on him as he walks past him. He does like a kid on headbutt, and the guy jumps. And then this is what happens. Basically, Jock's not got a lot of patience for the interview. Just waiting to get the word, Jock. No, Jock, we're just waiting to... Come on. Come on! OK, Jock Wallace, congratulations. A match that you really had to win twice. It must have been quite a blow. Yeah, they've done it. They've won it. They've won it once. That was enough. Hey, just won 3-2. That'll do me. What was the feeling as you watched Celtic equalise just with seconds Celtic to go? Celtic were playing well at that time. Celtic were a very good team at that time and it deserved a goal. As you went into extra time, were you confident? I was confident before it started, sir. All right. <laughs> 
I love his I love his utter disdain for the mundane realities of TV production. Like, come on, Jock, we have to wait, Jock. It's not how live TV works. Come on. <laughs> While we're on Jock uh, Wallace, I can't let it slip with that. This isn't an outburst. It's just that one of the best things that's ever been said by a manager ever in the best accents is when he said this before the Skull Cup final versus Celtic. And as for Big Jock himself, well, he had absolutely no doubts. Oh, I fancy us very strongly. Again, I've got the battle fever on, but I fancy Rangers to win the day. <laughs> Getting the that's, battle fever on. That's not an outburst, that's a mantra, isn't it? That's Come fantastic. On. It's like a life lesson. You should ask yourself every morning, have you got the battle fever on the day? <laughs> yeah, he was, he was. He was brilliant. And if, if anyone hasn't seen footage of Jock Wallace's heel at Leicester, look it up on YouTube, or we'll try and post it. It's, it's, I don't know, is it hilarious in 2000? It is hilarious, yeah. What the hell? It's He's, a human rights abuse, but it's hilarious. Gary, he was manager when Gary Lineker came through, and Lineker said he had me pinned up against the dressing room wall at half time, <laughs> yeah. calling me a lazy yeah. English, this and that and stuff. Lineker, he said, and I'd scored twice. Scored twice. <laughs> he said I'd scored twice. He said I went out in the second half and was terrible because I was terrified and shaking, basically. What he, was, he was a great manager. We kind of remember him for being possibly the scariest man ever to exist, but he was a bloody good manager. So I think he was a goalkeeper, so he was a very big and physically intimidating guy yeah. as well, which didn't help. What else have we got then in terms of this? Uh, Peter Reid at Sunderland, who was not <laughs> happy at half-time versus Wimbledon when they're losing 2-0. 1996, I think this is. Yeah. That's fucking shite. It's not about <laughs> fucking tactics and them being great players. It's about fucking arsehole, which they've got fucking more on the fucking day. So fucking get on with it. He then leaves the room and walks somewhere else then. That's why he goes quiet. Fucking men against fucking boys all over the fucking park. Fucking weak as piss, they are. Fucking weak as piss. I love the fact he goes into another room and then just kind of forgets that he's mic'd up. Goes to to say it in a kind of clandestine way. (laughs) It's like the Gordon Brown thing from. uh, Yeah, 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 absolutely. That was a bad season for Sunderland, wasn't it? Uh, I won't do Clough because it wasn't really an outbirth, but shall we finish on the legendary John Sitton? Yes, yeah. What, 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 I mean, everyone's heard this, but let's just listen to it again because it's wonderful. What you don't see again is he is the most sullen man you could probably ever imagine, John Sitton. He just doesn't, he's just, he looks like, I don't know, he looks like there's death in him. And this is him not very happy. Coming back at me when I'm shouting at you above the crowd and above the next one. Because I'll run this fucking football club until I'm told otherwise by the fucking circus upstairs. If you come back at me, you'll be off the field and you'll be following Terry down the road. If you come and see me tomorrow, you've got a fortnight's notice. Because that performance is the straw that (coughs) puts the camel's back. And that will not not be tolerated in this dressing room while I'm in charge with Chris Turner. That is the fucking straw that broke the camel's back. That is typical fucking late Norian. Sits you too intense, you fucking this, you that, no one can talk to you. I never fucking followed two good games out of a fucking game like that. The reason I was intense because I wanted to play well again. And I'm wasting my breath on some of you. I'm wasting my breath on some of you. What did I say to you about good players? They want to be good players all the time. Don't you know how profound that is if you're not examining the fucking words? <laughs> Because you've had two good performances and you think, I'm fucking Bertie Big Bollocks tonight. I'll fucking play how I like. But you won't play how you like, because if you play how you like, I'll fucking stick the youth to you. 
See, if I'm going to take abuse from a bunch of cockroaches behind me, I'll take abuse by doing it my way. And that is fucking conformity, not fucking non-conformity. So you, you little cunt, when I tell you to do something, and you, you fucking big cunt, when I tell you to do something, do it. And if you come back at me, we'll have a fucking right sort out here. Alright? And you can pair up if you like, and you can fucking pick someone else to help you, and you can bring your fucking dinner. Because by the time I'm finished with you, you'll fucking need it. Do you fucking hear what I'm saying or not? You see me in the morning. There's so much going on there. What, what I absolutely love about that, he goes from uh, sort of being really profound, like great players want to be great players all the time, to offering to kick both their heads in <laughs> within the space of 60 seconds. I also love the fact that he kind of has to suddenly remember that he's not included his, his, his co-manager when he goes, not while I'm in charge, with Chris Turner. With Chris Turner. <laughs> do, you know, do you know where that line came from, Matt, bring your dinner? No. It actually came from Robert Duval. Did I'm it? not joking. He watched Which it. Film? I think it was a film called Colours, and he said he, wa- he oh, was yeah, watching yeah, no, it. That's the one about in LA with Sean Penn. I've seen that one. Yeah. I'm not sure it included the bit about you, you little cunt, you big cunt, <laughs> but it certainly had a bit about bring your dinner, yeah. Because you'll need it afterwards. Why do you need dinner after someone's kicked your head in, assuming that's what's going to happen? But he, and he, sack, he basically sacks the bloke, doesn't he? Yeah. But he, he, he kind of so... lets, he tells somebody else he's sacking him while he's sat there, then sacks him. It's just amazing. Yeah. One of the other things I love about it is it's just so kind of raw and genuine as well. I mean, that was so that. I mean, that's not a you know a, a televised interview or anything. It's part of a docu soap, mm. and I think it's for is it from '95 or something? Yeah, yeah Norway Club for a fiver. Yeah, yeah, it's before the big rise of docu soaps, and I think there's a big kind of learnt behaviour now, isn't there? Of you know how to be remembered out of these things, but he clearly just didn't care. I mean, he's just a middle-aged man raging against the world. And I, I empathise with him <laughs> completely, uh, <laughs> completely on that front. So there you go. We'll finish with a classic, which is Mr. John Sitton. Thank you, everybody, for joining in with us this week. For those of you who've written in, don't forget to subscribe. Uh, we'll be back soon with another episode of Ness on Dorma. Thanks very much. See you, everybody. Sports Social Podcast Network.